You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm Monsignor Smith. We are considering the moral magisterium of John Paul II. Up to this point, the first four segments, we have been looking at, considering, reflecting on certain points that we would consider fundamental moral theology. Those basic premises, our purpose in life, human freedom, the norm of morality, external law, internal conscience, and questions like both sin and virtue. Why? Because actually, human actions that do bring us to our final end, which is God, are what we call virtue. Whereas human actions that do not bring us, and in fact lead us away from our final end, are called sin. What I'd like to do in this segment is to concentrate on a particular application, not a singular one, but a particular application rather than just on the fundamental. And in this case, I turn to a very lengthy and rather recent encyclical of Pope John Paul called The Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae. It's basically on the life issues, all the life issues from the very beginning, the abortion question to the very end, the euthanasia question. Some people, I suppose, singularly identify this Holy Father with the life issues and the life-death ethic. Even from what we have done already, I think that would be both unfair and inaccurate. The attention, the extensive teaching he has had on all the moral teaching of the Church, what we find in the Catechism, what we find in Veritatis Splendor, I'm not slighting, it's just that if we were to, we could have many sessions on just the social teaching of the Church, those three major encyclicals. But this particular one, Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, is very important and very, very John Paul II. I put down the date, the Feast of the Annunciation, 325-95. How did this come about? It began back in 1991 when there was an extraordinary meeting of all the cardinals of the Catholic Church. And the Holy Father, at a meeting basically about evangelization and concern about the life-death ethic, called all those cardinals, and afterwards he wrote a letter to every bishop in the Catholic Church in the whole world. And over a thousand bishops wrote back. Over a thousand bishops wrote back to the Holy Father with suggestions about the necessity and the need for a formal teaching on the Church's teaching on the life issues. And in a relatively short period of time, that's four years, from May 19, 1991 to March of 1995, when this encyclical was published. And it is quite lengthy. There's no question about it. This is not an off-the-cuff work. It's not a short story. It is of four major parts, 105 numbered paragraphs in here, something like 142 footnotes, and in English, it reads 189 pages. I put in the back of mine a little thing from the New York Times bestseller list, because in May of 1995, on page 44 of the Sunday Times Book Review, it was actually listed as a bestseller, probably because they published it in paperback so quickly, but um, very important document. And I think it's a signature document. I think it is consistent with all the things we have said so far about not only the teaching, but the method and the teaching style of John Paul II. Even the introduction here is very explanatory because the Holy Father mentions in the introduction, which is the first six numbers, in number three, why bring up these themes again? After all, he recounts, now remember this was 1995, he said it's only 30 years since the Second Vatican Council was concluded. And in Gaudium et Spes, Constitution of Church in the Modern World, number 27, had a long list of atrocities, namely abortion, genocide, euthanasia, and things like that. And the Holy Father says, if you look back now at those 30 years, in number four, he says, the climate has changed. The climate we live in, which climate he will call throughout this document, the culture of death. 
The climate has changed and has become more sinister. Why? Because some practices have become more systematic and broader sections of public opinion now try to justify crimes against life and oddly they do it in the name of rights, in the name of rights, as if it were an entitlement. And he says this is backed up with the authority of the state, which means of course when you legalize abortion and should we legalize assisted suicide or euthanasia, then the authority of the state authorizes what 30 years ago every state in every country everywhere said was a crime. So obviously the climate has changed. And it's not just a lone ranger, you know, like a Dr. Jack Kavokian type who's out there doing his thing, or Timothy Quill, Timothy Quill, the doctor from Rochester, who's really kind of a Brooks Brothers version of Kavokian. Oddly still, again, in large part, this is more a first world problem than a third world problem. We in the first world, so-called first world, I kind of think that uh, we're ahead of everybody. We have better technology. We certainly have more wealth. We have more opportunities. And yet, it may well be we are the ones who are legalizing the termination of the unborn, depending on individual choice. And if our Supreme Court should go the wrong way, the termination of the longborn, the elderly, the chronically ill, again, by individual choice. And the Pope points out this causes an immediate double pollution, a double pollution. It pollutes the medical profession, and it immediately pollutes families. Because actually, these are crimes that take place in the family. If it's an unborn child, and the mother consents, it's her own child whose death she's consenting to. And very often with a loved one, an elderly sick person, sometimes it's not perfect strangers who are pushing them in the corner or off the edge of the pier. It's their own family members for whom then that person has become a burden more on them than they see life as a burden. So it has tremendous impact, stabilizing impact, kind of a lethal impact on families, and a big change in the medical profession. Because the medical profession is a profession that should be dedicated to curing and caring. Where they can't cure, they should provide care. But we should never confuse a curing profession or a caring profession with a killing profession. This goes all the way back to the Hippocratic Oath which is mentioned favorably in Evangelium Vitae in number 89, the importance, remember that oath is 400 years before Jesus. That Hippocratic oath separated the witch doctor from the medical doctor. And we should keep them separated. The medical doctor is dedicated to a curing and caring profession, not a killing profession. And isn't it odd that the date of this is 1995, and it was just 50 years ago, in 1946, 1947, that the second round of Nuremberg trials were held. Remember, the first one were for politicians and for generals. But there was a second set of Nuremberg trials for medical doctors who dishonored themselves and dishonored their profession by committing crimes against humanity. You wonder whether we learned too much. And in number five, again, still within the introduction, the Holy Father giving more the explanation of why this focus, why this document at this time. He said a hundred years ago, in 1891, Pope Leo issued Rerum Novarum, which was on the working classes and the rights of workers. Why? Because they were oppressed. They were on the short end of the Industrial Revolution. Early on, you had people, even little children, working six and a half days a week, sometimes for very minimal wages and hard to survive. They were the oppressed people at that time. And the Pope says, today we have a new class of oppressed people, a new class, a new category. And it is their fundamental right to life, either at its beginning or at its end, that is at stake. And he says, about this, the church cannot be silent. No more than she was silent at the end of the last century, so she cannot be silent at the end of this century. And in fact, he says, the defense of the right to life, be it the unborn or the elderly and chronically ill, is actually part of the social teaching of the church. So he says, those people who say it's a single issue, he says they are mistaken. We're not talking about a single instance of taking life. We're talking about a climactic change where things that were considered crimes against life are now being justified, some are trying to justify them, in the name of rights and getting the authority of the state to back it up. So he says we really have a clash going on here. 
It's a clash between a civilization of love and life and a culture of death. Okay, if we turn to that first chapter, because apart from the specifics, and it's true, specific teaching on abortion and on euthanasia will be found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which lists many specifics. But in the first chapter here, the Holy Father tries to review the roots of this problem, of what he calls present-day threats. Several times in each of these components, I've tried to point out that Pope John Paul has this method of first reflecting on Holy Scripture. Very important. And in this particular case, he has made my little case absolutely clear because every single numbered section of this encyclical begins with a citation of Holy Scripture as the basis of reflection. And also from Numbers 7 to 17, the narrative about Cain and Abel is refuted. So just as in Veritatis Splendor, he started with Matthew 19, the rich young man. In Vita Consecrata, he started with Matthew 17, the transfiguration. In Reconciliatio Penitentia, he started with the Genesis account of the Tower of Babel. So here, he goes to Genesis 4 and offers us a long and lengthy meditation with contemporary application and of a secret reflection of John Paul II. I think we should attend to some of that. I have read Genesis 4. I am sure you have probably read Genesis 4. Just about everybody is familiar with the Cain and Abel narrative, but probably we're more familiar with the names than anything else. And what the Holy Father does is quote long sections of that passage and then unpack them one by one, one by one. Because the question is, what has contributed to this climate or culture of death that we have, this amount of violence, because taking someone's life obviously is violence. How has this come about? Where did this come from? And he goes back, reads over the Cain and Abel passage, and he attributes it to, he begins with, uh, where did their problem begin? Where did the problem come between Cain and Abel? And he said, first it comes about with anger and envy, and envy and anger. And that is true. And Abel's gift does not interrupt his dialogue with God, but he admonishes him, reminding him of his own freedom. But his brother takes a different point of view. And in fact, eventually the brother turns against Abel, and he kills him. Again, it's instructive. The first murder that's recorded in the Bible was not among strangers, but among a family. It was a brother who killed a brother. And then a very telling passage, the Pope. After this happens, after this violent act occurs, God intervenes to avenge the one who is killed. And God asks him about the fate of Abel, the fate of Abel. And Cain, instead of showing remorse and apologizing, arrogantly eludes the question. And we all know the famous answer. Where is your brother? And the answer in Genesis 4-9 was, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Pope says he arrogantly eludes the question and tries to cover up a crime with a lie. And it is. Now here we are in number eight of Evangelium Vitae. We're going back examining Genesis 4-9. He has just left his dead brother in the field. He later has a subsequent encounter and says, where is your brother? He says, I do not know. And the Pope is correct. He covers up a lie. And I think it's a little bit odd. I'll make it a fraction. Eight-fifths. It's my hunch that every time you really have a genuine violation of the Fifth Commandment, almost automatically you're going to have a violation of the Eighth Commandment. You're going to have a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Why? You're not going to tell the truth. He says, I don't know. Of course he knows. He just left the body. So he's told a lie. Later on in the encyclical, in number 11, the Holy Father will talk about innocuous medical terms. In number 58, he will talk about ambiguous medical terms. To put it in my terms, I have my own little maxim that I say, all social engineering is preceded by verbal engineering. All social engineering is preceded by verbal engineering. It's very, very important that the killing that goes on in our society not be described as killing. It must be called something else. 
so that always that killing, that violation of the Fifth Commandment is covered up with the Eighth Commandment. And I don't think this linkage is accidental, because if you go back to John 8.44, do you remember the description of the devil? It says, he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him. Lying is his native speech. But notice the linkage. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. I say in contemporary application, this is going on all the time. A famous editorial appeared in a publication called California Medicine, volume 113, September 1970, page 67. Now, September 1970 was almost two and a half years before the High Court, the Supreme Court, ruled the wrong way on abortion in Roe v. Wade. And in this editorial of California Medicine, now this is the California Medical Society, so it's the doctors writing for other doctors, there was an editorial entitled, A New Ethic for Medicine. A New Ethic for Medicine. The point was basically, look, we know very clearly when human life begins. However, since the vast majority of people in this country are still attached to some form of the traditional ethic that puts great worth on individual life, it's very important for the success of the abortion movement to separate the notion of killing from the notion of abortion. Now that's what I call the verbal engineering, to separate the notion of killing from the notion of abortion. And I must say, they succeeded. You now have people talk about terminate a pregnancy, remove the product of conceptus, retroactive contraception, or choice. They just call it choice, choice and anti-choice, without ever mentioning what we're talking about. We're talking about a choice that terminates someone's life. But termination, interruption, anything. They say, whatever you call it, don't call it killing. Why? Because most people are still convinced that killing is socially abhorrent. So, whatever you're going to call it, you don't call it killing. And in fact, if you get into advanced terminology, you don't even mention what we're talking about when you get into choice, anti-choice. I believe the same thing has also occurred now where euthanasia is concerned. If you have an older dictionary at home, a dictionary that was printed before 1981 or before 1980, take the big one, Webster's, the unabridged, the humongous, save you some time, it's on page 631. The definition of euthanasia is, it says euthanasia, parentheses, mercy killing. Euthanasia, parentheses, mercy killing. In the newer edition of Webster's, the new edition defines euthanasia as an act or treatment advocated by some for incurables. An act or method of treatment advocated by some for incurables. Notice, the word killing has mysteriously disappeared. Just as in the abortion movement, it was necessary to separate the notion of killing from the notion of abortion, so in the euthanasia movement, it is necessary to separate the notion of killing from the notion of euthanasia. Now, all of a sudden, people keep talking about the right to die, the right to die, as if it's an entitlement. It became an entitlement. What was a crime has become, in the minds of some, at least in their verbal packaging, an entitlement. Well, strictly speaking, there is no right to die. I mean, basically, the fact that you're born guarantees you're going to die. It's really an illusion to think that the Congress or the Supreme Court or some federal commission can give you extra rights in that regard. It's not possible. And you'd be deluded if you think you're going to get online for this new entitlement if it's going to be your right to die. But it just seems to me very perceptive when the Pope says, Cain tries to cover up his crime with a lie. That's what I call the verbal engineering. All social engineering is preceded by verbal engineering. You usually don't get too far in this country if you're going to give a public presentation and you start off by saying, hey, Let's get rid of the old folks. That's not going to sell, certainly not in Florida and other places where there are many retired people. However, if you start talking about entitlement and rights, and you never mention up front what you're really talking about, terminating a life, killing, I think that's how you can get some pretty lethal ideas wrapped in rather pleasant wrapping paper. And I think it continues. It's not just Cain and Abel. It continues to our time that people continue to cover up crimes with lies 
and they use this verbal engineering, or what the Pope calls innocuous medical terms, or ambiguous terms, and there's that tendency simply to refuse to accept responsibility for what we are doing. So even from the point of view of terminology, I think we have to be careful about our terminology. I'll put it bluntly. If you're good with words in this country, you can get away with murder, provided you don't call it murder. You must call it something else. The Holy Father continues, though. How did this come about? How did this come about? He says in number 11, well, on the one hand, there is a certain subjectivism in ethics that's become pretty prevalent. There is as well uh, isolation and some difficulties. Isolation amid difficulties. And this is a contributing factors on which all practicing Catholics, I think, should examine their conscience. We keep banging the drum and making an awful lot of noise about women terminating their pregnancies and sometimes about elderly people being a burden. When people are isolated amid difficulty, that often affects their thinking in a negative way. If, on the other hand, someone is around to give a little help, to give a little support, to give a little encouragement, to help pay a few bills, then some of their difficulties will not seem to them perhaps so overwhelming. But if they're by themselves, and we know this from our personal experience, when we are alone, we tend to exaggerate everything. We exaggerate our importance. We exaggerate our difficulties. We exaggerate our loneliness. We exaggerate the shortage of our funds. This can happen, and if people get isolated, and there is a tendency to isolate the unwed mother, and there is a tendency to isolate the chronically ill, the person who's not dying, but they're not getting any better, they're not getting any worse. And the more we isolate them, then we don't have to look at them, and we pretend that the problem is not there. But it seems to me we can only hold on in convincing ways if we help out in convincing ways. And as a matter of fact, it comes up much later in the encyclical, but it seems to me it's still statistically true in this country that women are more pro-life than men. The Yankelovich poll proves that. The Roper poll keeps proving that. It's still true as a generality. I know abortion is considered kind of the heart and lung machine of the so-called women's movement, and for some it's their liberation. But as a matter of fact, statistically, women are more pro-life than men for over 20 years. I have had a position in the State Right to Life Committee in my own state of New York, and I can tell you that if you go to a convention, you go to a meeting, it's got to be 80, 85 percent women. The ones who do all the work in the pro-life movement are basically women, certainly not men, and especially not clergy. And I think this is not entirely a mystery, because if some woman says to a man or announces a pregnancy, if his first reaction is, look, uh, here's $285 or $320, let's see if we can't solve the problem. If that, in fact, is the first excise of a dull selfishness toward life, why would we be surprised if the father of this child first turns away from her, that she, in turn, would turn away from that child? So I think that dull selfishness toward life begins more as a his problem than as a her problem. But there it is, and we have to be careful. We have to be careful of isolation amid difficulties, because when people get isolated, they don't always think straight. Pain and violence are now being presented, he says, to sometimes to make ends meet. It's often being reduced to an economic question. I have to do this. I can't afford it. I can't afford this child. I can't afford this parent. I can't afford to take time off to go visit this nursing home. And there's a conversion going on. There's a reality to economic pressures. But in, in that arithmetic, we're in trouble. Actually, though, he gets much more explicit in what he calls the eclipse of the sacred. The eclipse of the sacred. What is that? Fundamentally, when we say human life is sacred, what do we mean? We don't mean that it's special because lots of things are special. We don't mean that it's precious because many things are precious. The only sacred thing about us is the only thing we all have in common. We are not the same age. We do not have the same functions. We do not have the same capacities. But one thing about us is the same. Where we come from, 
God. And where we're going, God. Human life is a gift we have on trust for a while. And then we go back to God. Because of our origin, God, life is sacred. Because of our destiny, God, life is sacred. We say that human beings are the only things God made for their purpose, and they're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, if in fact we are living in a culture with the eclipse of the sacred, the more you lower the God profile, the more you lower the God profile, whether you want to or not, you lower the profile of what's made in the image and likeness of God. If the God idea is lessened, then the reflection of the same God. To see life as a gift, that too has been eclipsed. Most of us don't feel created. In fact, most of us have a feeling that we're very much in charge. In fact, we're closer to control freaks than anyone who has preceded us in the human adventure. But again, when you lessen the gift understanding, the fragility that human life is a gift, an entrustment, if you will, a gift in your own hands. You didn't make yourself, and I didn't make myself, and our life is a gift. If you are self-created, then you certainly should be producing your own series of tapes. But you're not self-created, and I'm not self-created, and human life is a gift. But if we lower that uh, God dimension, then the reflection of the God dimension will also be lowered, and we become somewhat preoccupied with simple and more effective and more efficient means to suppress human life. And this is a problem, and the Pope has only said the half of it. I think what we think of as gross procedures here at the close of the 20th century, many of them will seed, I believe, in the next century, within the next 25 to 30 years, to pharmacological procedures, so that the gross abortion procedures that we see, not just the vacuum aspiration or the dilation and extraction or the partial birth abortion or actually hysterotomy, but an awful lot of money is being invested on vaccines, HC, HCG and TBA, HCG, is the human chorionic gonadotropin vaccine, which basically affects a woman's immune system to attack and cleanse the bloodstream of the embryo-producing hormone HCG. If you can prevent that, then early on, you will cause an abortion so early on chemically that there'll be no corpus dilecti. Uh, similarly with the, the TBA vaccine which affects a woman's immune system and attacks directly and destroys the developing embryo prior to 14 days. We see some of it coming already in RU486, but that's a little bit more complicated, and in fact, two drugs. It's a bit more complicated than the press has so far presented. But sometime in the future, I think we're gonna see more chemical solutions. In fact, the human immune system, which is not too well understood, but we know the placental barrier is such that you don't have to have the same blood type as your mother. Now, anything that ends up in your body that really doesn't belong there, your immune system fights like blazes to reject it. Now, what is it about the placental barrier that allows nutrition to go one way, waste to go another, but it does not allow the killer white T cells of the mother's blood to attack the unborn? We don't know, but if they ever figure that out, then chemically, sometime in the next 25 or 30 years, they're gonna be very early on abortions, which will be impossible to monitor or to regulate, and they'll be chemical. I'm sure those chemicals will have side effects, but the Pope makes the point, isn't it odd that there's almost this preoccupation, if you will, I wouldn't say exclusive, but near exclusive preoccupation with spending all sorts of money on how we can most efficiently terminate life rather than spending that money, which is available, on supporting life, helping life, curing disease. After all, pregnancy is not a disease. Being elderly is not a disease. He thinks this is compounded greatly by kind of a perverse notion of freedom. Now this should be familiar to us from our second segment when we looked at that second part of Veritatis Splendor that notion of absolute autonomy is kind of a perversion of the ideal of freedom. 
And it's a twisting. Again, remember he's still reflecting on certain passages, a verse, in this case a half a verse, in the book of Genesis. He goes back again to Genesis 4-9. You know, where is your brother? I don't know. All right, that was that first lie. Then came the famous zinger for which Cain became famous forever and ever. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? There's a notion, a false notion of freedom that is getting so twisted into an absolute version of autonomy, the sovereign self, the sovereign self, my singularity in the universe, if you will, that some people are beginning to look on all other people as enemies, as intruders, as rivals. And this is part of the culture of death. In number 20, he says, everyone else is an enemy from whom I have to, against whom I have to defend myself. In number 98 of Evangelium Vitae, he says, other lives are seen as rivals for me to be protected against. That's a perverted notion of freedom, a, a kind of twisted notion of autonomy, where everyone else is intruding on your life, intruding on your space. Therefore, an unborn a child is unwelcome, an intruder, kind of a night crawler, is going to cramp my style. Or the elderly person is preventing me from taking my vacation or taking over their house or whatever. Again, an intrusion on it, and it's a false notion of freedom. So toward the end of the encyclical, when he's going to make suggestions about building the culture of life, clearly, to some extent, we have to adjust not just our thinking, but our lifestyle, and move from this indifference to concern, to move from rejection to acceptance, to accept people for their own sake and for who they are. And the family, ideally, should be the first place where you are accepted for who you are. Not for what you do, not for what you have, not for what you make, but simply for who you are. You should be welcome there. You should be welcome there. But we have taken this mentality of this false kind of freedom, which is twisted, and we start measuring people in terms of whether they are a burden to me or perhaps a benefit to my individual psychic satisfaction or what have you. And the Pope says, this has helped account for what he calls an amazing contradiction, that here toward the close of the 20th century, one of the more important things that has happened in this century, it is, of course, the bloodiest of centuries, but one of the most important things that has happened has been a correct emphasis on human rights and their proclamation. The United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, our own understandings and tradition about human rights, that goes all the way back to our Declaration of Independence that says some things are self-evident, self-evident like the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that Congress did not give these to us. We are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. And now, post-World War II, because of atrocities that took place in that period, government after government has made either part of their constitution or some kind of special proclamation, Declaration of Human Rights. And the Pope says, isn't it odd that here we are toward the close, the last decade of the 20th century, that on paper we have made the finest proclamations of human rights, but selectively they are not observed. Because those who are the youngest among us, those who are fewer than nine months old, their human rights are not being observed. They're being abused or terminated. And, at least in Holland already, perhaps in other places, the elderly are the chronically sick. It's a tragedy going on now in the Netherlands where euthanasia is technically not legal, but it is practiced. And a study by their own government determined that almost 15%, more than 12%, perhaps as high as 15% of the so-called mercy killings were involuntary. People didn't ask for it. Didn't ask for it. It was done without their consent. That's a gross violation of their human rights. So that although we have the proclamations, which are good and clear and wonderful and needed, but those proclamations on paper are not being observed fully in fact and in life. And that's, that's an odd thing. Why, he says, again, he comes back to the eclipse. In this case, the eclipse of the sense of God. 
because of the connection that we are made in the image and likeness of God, just as he argued before, you lower that God profile, you're going to lower the image profile. And the Holy Father in number 23 of Evangelium Vitae spells out basically the kind of practical materialism that has really been the architecture of the culture of death. On the one hand, we do have a tendency to censor suffering, censor suffering. We don't want to hear about it, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to go on and on about it. But he puts down a criterion which I find very, very persuasive. I quote him, he says, we see the first harm are women and children and the sick and the suffering and the elderly. And that the criterion of personal dignity, which demands respect, generosity, and service, is being replaced by a criterion of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness. The criterion, the standard criterion, because of what someone is, not because of what they do or what they have, because of what someone is, the Judeo-Christian understanding, because of what the person is, this demands respect, generosity, and service. Simply to respect them for what they are, be generous to them for what they are, be able to serve them simply for what they are. That standard criterion, the Judeo-Christian criterion, is being replaced by a standard of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness, which is a considerable shift. I mean, this is earthquake proportions. The ground is being moved under our ethical convictions and our outlook. He says, others are considered not for who they are, but for what they have and what they do and what they produce. Efficiency, functionality, and usefulness for what they have and what they do and what they produce. Now, obviously, if that shift takes place, the unborn, they don't have anything, they don't produce anything, and they're not all that useful. They're dealt out. But the long-born, the elderly sick, the chronically ill, they are, in the judgment of many people, they're going to lose by the efficiency criteria, the functionality criteria, and the usefulness criteria. And this is a tremendous shift, because what's really happening is instead of seeing a person for what he or she is, we tend to judge them by what he or she does, or what they make. And I'm sure it makes as much sense to you as it does to me. As soon as you or I are defined in terms of our usefulness, well then the day is going to come when in the judgment of other people, you're more trouble than you're worth. You become a burden. Your efficiency is zilch. Your functionality is zero. Your usefulness is nada. On that criterion, the elderly, the chronically ill, have to lose. And this is a shift, the Pope points out, that's largely going on in the first world. And it's a shift in attitude. It's a shift in attitude. It's a, it's a, a change in how we look at and value persons. And it's a profound thing, and it's an odd thing. There are people who do not like Pope John Paul II. There are people who do not like his teaching in general. There are people who do not like these teachings in particular. And yet, of all of the comments that came out on Evangelium Vitae, I have not seen a single comment that says his analysis of this shift is wrong. I have seen no one who said that he's wrong. That a very profound shift, even in Western civilization, is now in progress. We are moving away from a standard of respect, generosity, and service. I don't doubt that at times it has been breached. Every one of us knows instances where it has been breached, where it has not been respected. But we are moving, and we're moving slowly, but we're moving surely to a new and a different standard. And we must acknowledge that it's different. Where we measure other people, where we measure other people, and therefore value other people by their efficiency, by their functionality, by their usefulness. That's your definition of a culture of death because it converts persons into things. Persons into things. In the Holy Father's first encyclical, Redemptor Hominus, he had a whole section of proper 
saluting human progress, but he asked, what is modern man afraid of? And in some cases, we're afraid of our own progress. And he insisted that whatever we call progress, there must be a priority of persons over things, a priority of ethics over technology, and a priority that we have to really honor that is spiritual over material. And although Redemptor Hominis, his first encyclical, was not a moral encyclical, the teaching about Christ as the center and the central person, and that man, the human person, is made in the image and likeness of God, that's why we have to respect persons over things. That's why there is a priority to ethics, human ethics, over technology. That's why there is a priority to the spiritual over the mere material. And that is shifting. That whole movement is shifting. So if we look at the first chapter, numbers 7 to 28 of Evangelium Vitae, what the Holy Father does is say, look, in the introduction, we're talking about things that 30 years ago are crimes, they're not crimes today. They're authorized by the state. This is a tremendous change in human history, a tremendous change in social policy. Usually, very few things change that quickly. I mean, 30 years is a long time for a 35-year-old, but 30 years in, in all of human history is not that big a deal, and this big shift has occurred. A hundred years ago, we were sensitive, properly sensitive, and there was a clarion call to the defense of an oppressed group of people, largely the working people. Well, now toward the end of our century, there's another oppressed group of people whose right to life is being oppressed, the very young and the very old. And he tries to look at those. We want to be very careful about our terminology. We have to be very careful about the terminology and not cover up crimes with new lies or new verbal engineering assess as best we can the subjectivity that has become pervasive in ethics, be very alert to isolation amid difficulties because it leads to negative thinking, and pay great attention to the eclipse of the sacred, the eclipse of the sacred, and that enemy of all human progress called absolute individual autonomy that tends to look at other people as aliens, as enemies, as outsiders, as intruders on my life. Because if you ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? We used to consider that a rhetorical question, right? We used to think everybody knew the answer to that question. It is not clear now that everyone knows the answer or will give the same answer. Because if you shift from a standard of respect, generosity, and service to the standard of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness, you get a different answer to the question, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Depends how efficient he is. Depends how functional he is. Or the killer. Depends how useful he is to me. It's as if this autonomous individual is the sun, and all other people in your life are like planets spinning around you. Their efficiency contributes to you. Their functionality contributes to you. Their usefulness contributes to you. That's what makes them valuable. Well, the Judeo-Christian ethics says, no, that's not true. He or she is valuable because of what he or she is, made in the image and likeness of God. However, that is disguised. The unborn in a womb because you can't see the child, or the long-born who's disguised by illness or handicap or even impairment in cognitive thinking, those are only disguises. Underneath each one of them is another one just like you and me made in the image and likeness of God. And that's the key insight on the sacredness of human life that goes all the way through this encyclical. And this is one of the key things that I'm afraid people have gotten a little bit flubby on. It might help. You remember in St. Luke's Gospel, I believe it's the 22nd chapter, and certain people came up to ask the Lord Jesus a question about taxes. Why don't your disciples pay taxes? And he instructed one of them, Peter, to um, produce a coin, which he did. And he asked, whose image is on that coin? Whose image? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus said, fine. Then you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. Okay, you are made in the image and likeness of God. Say, for the sake of impossible example, 
Say we had a supernatural CAT scan. Say we had a spiritual MRI. Say we could get a real picture of your soul. We can't, but say we can. Say we can get a picture or an image of your soul. What would be on your soul? Made in the USA? Made in Taiwan? If we had such a thing, it would say, made in the image and likeness of God. I don't care how it's disguised. By age, very, very young, even embryonic, very, very elderly, even crippled and handicapped, by size, big or small, by endowments, smart or dumb, by personality, a glowworm or a glitz. It doesn't matter how it's disguised. Somewhere underneath all of those disguises is another one made in the image and likeness of God. And that's what we must respect, and that's why life is really sacred. That's not just churchy terminology. It's a crucial insight because it helps us to appreciate the giftedness and that life truly is a gift from God. You didn't ask to be born and you did not create yourself, me either. God wanted you born, God wanted you created and participated in it, why we call it procreation, because God made your soul. And that soul is made in the image and likeness of God, which is always deserving of respect, generosity and service simply because of what you are, not on the standard of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness. And that shift, again, to repeat myself, the Holy Father is not appreciated or applauded in certain circles, but in certain magazines that really don't take well, and journals of opinion that don't take well toward Catholic teaching, I have yet to see any one of them who said that number 23 is an incorrect analysis that it's a misreading of the present North Atlantic situation. It is what is going on. And this shift to the culture of death has to be opposed by the culture of life. The second chapter of the encyclical reminds us of something that's enormously important. Basically, when Jesus teaches in John 10.10 10, that he has come to give life so that you might have life to the full, we have to remember as Christians, we should always remember as Catholics, that when we're talking about life, and we're talking about the principles of life, we're not talking about an abstraction. We're talking about a person, a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who once described himself as the way and the truth and the life. That he came in John 10.10. 10. The way, the truth, and the life is John 14.6. But he came in John 10.10 10, so that we might have life and have it to the full. And what happens in that second chapter, and again, it's every single numbered section begins with a citation of Holy Scripture. The Holy Father goes through many, many references in the Old Testament and many, many references in the New Testament to cite how pro-life the sacred documents are, how pro-life they are, and they are, that life is seen as a gift, it's seen as a good. It is a good gift of a good God, a good gift of a good God. You cannot read Gnosticism into the Old Testament because you remember in the account in Genesis, God created the light and God created the stars and God created the water. And each time it says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And at the end, the creation of the human person, it was very good. All of God's creation is good. God's creation is good. So that whole second chapter is going to make a very serious point. Life is good. It is always a good. Can it be burdened? Yes. Do handicaps hurt? Yes. Do deleterious consequences make life more difficult? Yes. But remember, it is a good life that is burdened by other things. Be careful you do not fall into the trap of seeing or describing life itself as a burden. Now, life is a blessing. Remember in Deuteronomy 30, at the end, when the commandments were being summed up and Moses was giving his last advice to the chosen people, he said, I put before you a choice, life and death, the blessing and the curse. Notice he was always convinced that life is a blessing. Life is a blessing and it is a good. It is a good. And they go all the way through, the Pope goes all the way through, looking at the unborn in the Bible. And it's an odd thing. There is no mention of direct abortion, of course, in the New Testament at all. And there's only one mention in the Old Testament, Exodus 21:22, which is actually an accidental but purposely caused miscarriage. It said if two people are fighting and 
you injure a woman who is pregnant and it causes a loss, then the husband has the right to demand some satisfaction. And if it's more than just a monetary harm, then eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life, life for life. But it's not a clear case because actually the Hebrew society was very pro-life. They had no use, they had no affection at all for abortion. They were surrounded by cultures, particularly the Greeks and the Romans, who were notoriously insensitive to human life, but not theirs. They always saw life as a good, as a blessing. And we have to make sure that we try to incorporate that ourselves. Similarly, in the New Testament, there's no explicit mention of abortion, but the value system is, again, seen as a good. In fact, in Luke 1.44, in the visitation, it says, when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, it says in the Greek, the brephos, the brephos, leapt in her womb. Brephos in Greek means baby. The brephos leapt in her womb. And that every mention of life in the New Testament is about being a blessing and a good with which we are entrusted. And in fact, Jesus is referred to in the Acts of the Apostles as the author of life the author of life. He accepted life fully with its pluses and its minuses, with its contradictions and all of that. So when you read the New Testament, you look at the life of Jesus. It's not a matter of hiding or pretending or just saying nice things or painting it all in pastel colors. It's the full acceptance of life. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, put aside the prerogatives of God, took on our limited human nature and became one of us so that he could accomplish our salvation. Therefore, his life gets linked to our life, which links to eternal life with him. So it is always seen as a good. It is not only the primary, but it is the summit of creation, our origin and our destiny. And all of chapter two is an examination of Holy Scripture. And just there to underline that conviction that human life is a gift, from God we have on trust for a while. Of that, we must be absolutely convinced. And from that, we can make the next and the further applications. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.